This morning, our reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, Here we are, one sermon before we begin our series uh, in Advent, the songs of Advent, we're calling it, uh, songs of the gospel of Luke. But this morning, uh, we're going way back. We're going way back to seven years ago. There are a few people in this room that recognize this graphic as we went through a sermon series in 1 Corinthians called A Beautiful Mess. Uh, Why would we call a sermon on any book of the Bible a beautiful mess? Well, it's real simple, because the church in Corinth was a real mess. If you've paid attention to the book of 1 Corinthians, even 2 Corinthians, you'll see that there are controversies, there's divisions, there's struggles. And in in our partnership manual, even, it says this, I am willing to wholeheartedly serve, pray for, and support the mission of Crosspoint, even in the messiness and adventure. We try to put a little positive spin on it. Uh, even in the messiness and adventure of a church plant. You see, at Crosspoint Coast, we don't have necessarily all of the same messes as did the Corinthians, but we are in the same need of a call to trust in Christ and his gospel. Not in ourselves, or even in our love of one another. And so, uh, this morning I thought we have this little moment where we could go back and remember something that we've remembered before, and for many of us are new, and, and you, we can remember perhaps for the first time together something here from First Corinthians that ought compel us. So to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to begin by looking at the flow of First Corinthians the flow of 1 Corinthians is really a series of abuse of rights. The, the Corinthians, they really did have rights to claim, rights that they have that are in Christ, that are in what he's purchased for his people, certain rights as believers. And they were, but what were, was happening is they were claiming these rights instead of sacrificially loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus Christ, that is the one who had secured these rights for them, and yet they were abusing these rights against one another. They were, in effect, not just abusing their rights. They were actually abusing one another in the name of holding on to the rights that they have in Christ. Christ, who set aside the glories of heaven. Christ, who came to earth to live the righteous life that they had failed to live and gave up his life on the cross to save them. And they were claiming rights in that Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul, in, during the course of Corinthians, calls them to be servants to all. Why? 
Why servants to all? Well, because they were becoming servants to themselves. Here's how he puts it. In 1 Corinthians 10, 24, he says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. By chapter 10, we see that this people who have been, uh, have been leveraging their relationships, their, who, who had taught them, who had discipled them, what freedoms they have in the gospel, they were leveraging their various spiritual gifts to make much of themselves rather than to serve one another. They were seeking to their own advancement, and so Paul confronts them with this, let no one seek his own good. We have a people who are leveraging their social position, even when it comes to the Lord's Supper. They were leveraging their social position in the Lord's Supper. How are you supposed to come in the Lord's Supper? What's supposed to be the disposition of the people of God? Well, it's as a people who are hungry and in need of provision, the provision that we find in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to come as a people in need, not a people who are puffed up leveraging our position. So when we come to the spiritual gifts, when the Apostle Paul begins to address these, Paul has to tell them that these gifts were given for the common good, not to puff yourself up, but for the common good. Paul has rebuked this church in Corinth for these abuses, but now in 1 Corinthians 13, our text for this morning, he comes to the heart of the problem. And the bottom line issue is love is the greatest spiritual gift. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning you would situate us under love, If we pray a prayer like that, we're asking to be situated under you, Lord. Situate us under who you are, the way that you are, the what you have done. And Lord, I pray that as we're situated under you, we would stay there and not, not get up quickly. Stay there. Remain situated in your love, you who are lovers of our soul, and has called us to cherish a new way pray that you would work this in your church this morning. You know, just real quick, I'm going to ask the sound guys, would you guys mind turning on that middle light? I want to be able to see the church a little bit uh, better this morning uh, over there. Um, I want to be able to see you as, as we walk our way through. I also want you to make sure that you can see your Bibles and don't have to strain uh, to see them. This morning, what we see is love is the greatest spiritual gift. And you see that right away in verse one through three. Look at it with me. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. But if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So basically, you can have tongues, you can have prophetic powers, you can have great knowledge, you can have volunteerism, or even martyrdom, okay? You can have all of that, but if you don't have love, if you don't understand love, if you don't know how to walk in love, you don't have anything. Why? I mean, it seems like those are a pretty big deal, right? Why don't, why don't you have at least something Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, what does that have to do with this? How do you get love? How do you get love? That God would pour the Holy Spirit into our hearts, freely given to us. Love is the great spiritual gift of God given to us by his spirit. It is the gift that makes all the other gifts operate for the common good. Otherwise, we could simply receive a gift from the spirit, open it up, and consume it for ourselves. But that's not how the spirit is given. He is given as a gift to us for the common good of the whole of the household of God. How does Jesus define love? 
Jesus teaches on love many times, particularly in John 13 through 17. Go there. Enjoy it this week. And in John 15, 13, he says this. Greater love has no one than this. What's that look like? That someone would lay down his life for his friends. See, worldly love is a love that has to be reciprocated. It's when you actively love someone in order to feel loved or at least appreciated in return, right? So really, by loving, what you're looking to do is consume the love of the other person. Jesus is saying that true love, not love according to the world that has reciprocation, perhaps a warm feeling as its objective, true love is when you give your life for another's good. In 1 John 3.16, this is the other John 3.16, and it's beautiful. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Do we know what love is? Do we say that we have received love? How can we say that we've received love if we don't love the way of love? And love gives its life for its brothers. To lay down our lives for the body, that is what is being described to us. To lay down our lives for the family as our older brother, Jesus Christ, laid down his life to make the family and bring us to the Father. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. This is right before our passage this morning. It ends this way. And I will show you a still more excellent way. What is this excellent way? that Pastor Paul is about to unpack for the Corinthian church. Well, we've seen the way of Corinth, how it leads to division, strife, controversy. Pastor Paul goes to them and he says, I'm going to show you a better way than the way that you've been walking in, a better way than the way of the church of Corinth, which is really just the way of the world. And then he launches into it, and he goes into verses 1 through 3 that we just read together. We're going to see three things about love. And the first thing that we see about love is actually the absence of love. Isn't that what 1 through 3 is all about? Isn't that the whole first section? You have not love. There's controversy throughout 1 Corinthians. There are lots of controversies, a lot of arrogance. A lot of self-centered ladder climbing throughout Corinth, trying to justify themselves with a variety of theological arguments, with a variety of wrangling for position out of their position in society. But Paul's point every single time, Paul's goal is not to resolve the controversies by a theological disputation. Did you hear me on that? When he confronts the controversies, Paul knows what's right. He could teach on it. He could write Romans, for instance, on it. But that's not what he does. In fact, in Corinth, Paul rarely gives a clear, definitive answer to the controversy. It's not the point of the letter. It's not his main concern. Think about it. If he would have given a clear answer, he would have opened up the opportunity for some in this self-centered church to say, yeah, see, we were right. Good thing we're disciples of Paul. Right? And they would have been puffed up in their self righteous position. They would have had all knowledge, but not love. Paul's point wasn't who was right or who was wrong. Right and wrong, it matters. It matters a lot. If, but he says, if you have not love, you gain nothing from being right. Paul's point is that they don't know the gospel. He can prove it. He can prove it that they don't know the gospel because they're not loving each other. If you'd figure that out, then you would know the gospel. If you would know the gospel, then you would be able to figure out many of the vain controversies that are among you. Perhaps most of the controversies would actually be resolved if those who were technically right would have learned first the first statement in the passage about love. If those who were technically right, theologically accurate, would have been patient with one another. No less right. No less dogged in their concern for what is right and good for the church. His point is that they don't know the gospel because they don't know the love 
of Jesus Christ. And he can prove it because they're not walking in that love no matter how right they are. So what does Pastor Paul do? Well, he pulls out some of the things that the people have been walking in, some of the things that the people would have thought would solve their problems and make them a better church. And this is what he does in these first verses. He, first of all, he goes at the talkers. In, in, in 13, he begins with the talkers, the people who speak in tongues of men and of angels. You have some people who just like to talk. Some of the people like to talk in other languages. Some people like to talk in big heavenly words. Some people like to talk in perhaps even miraculous divine words. They're, and they think they're pretty cool because of it. And they've got the right talk. They think that everybody should just pay attention to them, and they're talking, and that would fix all the problems of the church. I think today we have advice givers, right? Perhaps we even have good prayers in the church. If you just pray with me and pray like me and pray with my kind of humility, then the church would be fixed, right? You know what those are called. Those are called Pharisees. They were good at it. They were good prayers. Often their their technical position in the culture was the accurate position even. They were good talkers, but they led people right off a cliff without love. Jesus calls them blind guides. Talk alone is never going to do it. If, if, if talk is not motivated and saturated in love and self-sacrifice, talk is just noise. And then you have the the thinkers, and he calls these empty. Now, I don't really like this one much. We're going to go quickly through it, because I happen to be a thinker. I'm an analyzer. I like to make connections between ideas. You have people who say that they have prophetic powers, or or they understand mysteries and, and knowledge and deep, perhaps even logical things. And if they have all faith as to move mountains, but have not love. They're nothing. You have people who read books. You have people who read books that other people don't even know exist, right? You have people who write blog articles about other blog articles that no one's ever even read. These are the thinkers. This letter seems to suggest that if you find just the right theological church, where you hear all the right teaching and they read all the right books and all the right versions, and they exercise all the doctrinal, doctrinal knowledge, perhaps you could even be a teacher there yourself. But if you have not love, nothing. And then you have the doers. And culturally speaking, this is a favorite, Right? I mean, it's all just a bunch of talk and prayer language and stuff. What about do something? You have the doers, and this one's hard to argue with. They're they're the ones who actually get stuff done in the church. If you give all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It says here that if you give all you have, you're sacrificial. You're even a martyr. These are the hands and feet people. Yes, Christ has made us a body. That is what we are if we are the church. And there are hands and feet people in the church. But we're not the body of Christ, but rather the incarnate, incarnate body of the world. If, we, if what we do is for ourselves, is for our political position, is for our social positions, that others would see what we do or so that we could accomplish something in ourselves and make ourselves great. If we don't lay ourselves down in love for the sake of making Christ known and the betterment of those who are with us, we gain nothing. All that we have is a body that's burnt up doing stuff. And perhaps that's you. You're a doer and you've worked hard and you wonder Why isn't it working? You've gained nothing. The world is no better place if we aren't saturated with the gospel. That a king, that has a king who who has come to live among his people, to die in the place of his people. What would you expect that people to do? 
who is that kind of sacrificial, loving king? What should we expect of ourselves except that we would give our own selves up for the sake of that same body, that same church? I think it's likely that each one of us finds ourselves in at least one of these three things, talkers, thinkers, and doers. But these without love, wherever you happen to be situated, is nothing. Paul has described in detail the absence of love, but here we are at the moment we've all been waiting for. Forget about all this, you've gained nothing stuff. Let's talk about the love chapter, right? Here we are in verse We get to talk all about this beautiful passage. Often we've seen it in artwork and we've heard it read at weddings. I've read it at weddings. But sometimes it seems that this passage on love takes on a sort of quaintness. It seems like a soft, warm, comforting sort of passage. It sounds so nice, so pleasant. Love is patient. Love is kind, right? It sounds like if we could just all get along, then everything would be okay, church, right? But the fact is, I hear that same sort of thing from the world. If we could all just get along, right? What's the difference between what Paul would say here, what the Holy Spirit would record and have handed down to us Today and what the world would have us just do better. What's the difference between this love and the love of talk shows and Instagram? Let's look a little closer. What's what's the assumption that Paul makes as he is recounting this list of love? Consider this. If you're told to be patient or to not insist on your own way, if you're told not to be resentful, What is the assumption? Think with me. If I told you to be patient, what circumstance are you in? What are the relationships like in your life? Aren't they trying relationships? Why else would you need to be told to be patient? There's nothing quaint about it. And when you're in a trying relationship, when you're in the sort of contentious, controversial relationships like the people are in Corinth, there's nothing quaint about being told, be patient, be kind. You're like, I've been patient. Right? If you're told, don't insist on your own way, what circumstance are you in? Are you not in a circumstance that is uncomfortable, that you would insist that it would become more comfortable to you? You don't like a situation, and you don't like where things are going. It's not pretty, it's not quaint, and it's not comfortable. It turns out that 1 Corinthians 13 isn't quaint, and it's not comfortable, because real love does not operate in quaint and uncomfortable situations. Real love is beautiful. It is. And it ought to be sung, and it ought to be put in artwork, and it ought to be read at weddings. It should be presented in artwork with sunsets and pastels and calligraphy because true love is beautiful. But that beauty operates in the messiest of places because in all of those places, it will be tested. And when it's tested, love isn't written in pastels. And it's not sung in romantic melodies. It's written in blood, and it's whispered through tears. Love. Love is written in self-sacrificial blood of a people who don't walk in resentment. And they have cause to. You might even say, you ought to resent something like that. But Paul says love is patient. Stay is kind. Remain. Keep going. If you're told not to walk in resentment or irritation, what is true? Do you not have something that you could legitimately resent? You see, this passage presumes that there is something to be patient with. That's why we called 1 Corinthians a beautiful. It's beautiful. And it operates in a mess. 
This church is a mess, such a huge mess that Paul, by the time he gets to the 13th chapter of his letter, he has to unpack love for them. If you want to be a part of the body of Christ, you're going to need every one of these attributes all the time because life and love in the body isn't comfortable. Love assumes that there will be trials in the body of Christ, in the church. The call to love assumes that there are lots of reasons not to love. And you didn't have to be told that, did you? You have a list of reasons not to love. Paul unpacks a list of ways to be in that mess. Love assumes that there are lots of reasons not to love, and then for the sake of Christ, loves anyway. Some seem to think that the church should be different than the world. Shouldn't we not be a mess? And we should. Oh, we should. And when Christ comes, the work of sanctification in the hearts of believers, as, some, as, as true, become true when we say him face to face, make no mistake, the church will be radically different. But as we await that day, we are in need the most of forgiveness. Daily, morning by morning, we are in need of grace and great faithfulness. We are in need of patience. As for now, this is called long-suffering. It's called repentance and forgiveness, not legalism and perfection. Not pretending and performing. Repentance and forgiveness are the marks of the church. And friends, if there's repentance, there's a mess. And if there is something that, that to forgive that we would be called to forgive, there's some wrong being done. Now, this passage tells us that we're not talkers, we're not thinkers, we're not doers. At the level of our motivations and dispositions toward one another, we're not talkers, thinkers, or doers. What we are is believers. And friends, that is a A radically different thing because talking and thinking and doing are all deeds that come from the flesh. But belief, faith, is a gift from God. This is our identity. What have we been given? We've been given faith. We believe what we believe about Jesus. And this means that the love that Jesus has for us is extraordinary. There is a love that can handle a mess like me. There is a love that is patient and that is kind. Before I do anything, before I say anything, before I think anything, I believe that there is something that is true about Jesus, about something about his way that he has incarnated in a love. That changes everything. So what is this love? What is this love that we have in the love of Christ? We're going to look at each one of the the points very briefly. But let us say that love is patient and kind, right? Who is a lover who is long-suffering and kind? Well, the one who is a lover who is long-suffering and kind is one that you just can't make him angry. You you can try to make him angry. You can give him good cause to be angry, but he's long-suffering, and he will suffer your tiresome ways a very long time. Who is that lover? When you sin against him, or you're caught in some temptation or some unbelief, he'll endure with you. Why? Well, because he'll call you to repentance and belief, but he'll remain with you. In that struggle, who is that lover? This lover does not demand a change for days, for today. Even as he prays and he longs for change today, but he trusts not in your ability to change, but rather in the Holy Spirit's ongoing work to bring about spiritual fruit in your life. And he's not going to disappear, but he's going to remain because he wants to be there when he sees it. He wants to see the evidence that God is real because he's worked in you. He's not going away. You'll suffer long. 
Who is this lover? This lover, we are told, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way. That's a hard one. In a diverse body, in a gathering of people, it seems in all these three that he doesn't seem to be concerned for himself. I want you to think as we walk through this passage, as we look at these characteristics of love, I want you to consider Christ. Consider the way that he deeply embodied, actually walked in and poured out every one of these attributes to the uttermost, as far as these attributes could be pushed as a human being. Not only so that he would become an example for us, and and friends, that he is the example but that he would enable us, that he would send his spirit, the spirit of the Christ, to dwell in us. Consider this. Because I am fully approved in Christ, because I know him, and he has made his boast in my salvation, this is his delight, this is his joy, this is his glory that he has redeemed a people. I don't have to boast in me. I've been set free from boasting because I am approved in my Lord. I don't have to be arrogant or rude because if I boast in anything, I boast in Him, not me. Do you see what the Savior has done? I have no, nothing to boast of in me. If I boast, I boast in my sin because that sin, that's what my Savior has overcome. Look how He's changing us by grace, through faith, to the glory of the Lord God alone. This is Christ who does not envy or boast or is not arrogant or rude and does not insist in his own way. Who is this lover? This lover that the passage tells us is not irritable or resentful. Again, I don't like this one. Does anyone else have a problem with this being on the list? Probably most of us are in the room we're like, irritable? Really? Isn't that like kind of okay sometimes if you don't get a lot of sleep or if you're hungry? At least it's a little bit of irritability. But this lover isn't irritable and this lover isn't resentful. This lover must have some wellspring of grace, some strength, some energy that this lover can call upon, some approval that satisfies when everything else within him has run dry. Where does this lover go for approval? Where does this lover go when he thinks, what if the world was ordered in such a way that I had more comfort and more control? No. Instead of trying to manipulate his or her home or circumstances or relationships or workplace, this lover goes to the Lord and says, I long for the day when there is peace. I long for the day when there is rest. Bring that peace and rest, lover of my soul, to my soul today. Who is this lover? This lover does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rather rejoices with truth. He's found what is good and is unwavering in it. Not wrongdoing, but good. One of the questions that we ask when we get in our little groups that we call triads here at Cross Point Coast, when we try to speak the gospel to one another, we often say, what have you forgotten about how great, how good is our God that we would chase after lesser things? Often it's a sinful thing, something that just doesn't belong in a central place in our life, and this lover, the one who loves Christ, who loves as Christ has loved us, is dogged in his pursuit of that which is great and good and rejoices in that truth at all times. We know the good. We know the name of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and he has loved us well. We know his name, but have we treasured his way? Who is this lover? This lover who bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That means that the circumstances don't change the lover. 
The circumstances can change. They do change, don't they? The relationships around him do change. But this lover endures all things. How in the world is that possible? I've never seen this before. Except Jesus. But you know, Jesus, he's Jesus, right? So we're off the hook, right? Jesus is Jesus. He does it. How is it possible? I can't live up to the measure of all things and all circumstances at all times. I don't find this to be a quaint little scripture at all. I actually find the love chapter to be oppressing. I can't do that. I haven't done that. I can't live up to that. I'll tell you, one of the ways that I've personally struggled with living up to this is in the context of a church plant. I've been involved in a number of church starts along the way where I've been involved in perhaps getting to know the pastor who was starting it or maybe getting to know the core team that was gathering or sitting in on some of the early meetings. And one of the things that's become difficult for me is I sit in in those meetings, how many people I hear, perhaps even sometimes, the pastor himself casting a vision and he says something like this, in this church, we're going to be different. We're going to be the church that loves each other, where where people can come and be themselves, and we're going to be patient with one another. And they start walking through a list. Often it's called the list of values or convictions for the church. And I'm like, I can't do half that. And I've never seen it done. And I'll tell you, not only can I not do that, I cannot pastor a flock to be able to do that. So I've had to struggle as I've walked through the planting of this church. Are we going to plant a church under the quaint little notion that we're going to be the first ones in history to get it right? And I'm going to be the one who shepherded you, you to get it all right. We're going to be the church that loves like Jesus loves. So come to us and you'll see what real love is like. Well, consider the community rhythm at Cross Point Coast. At Cross Point Coast, we have these gospel rhythms, the gospel rhythms that begin with a celebration of the story of God and his gospel. And as we see who God is, and as we see what God has done, that he has connected us, the connection rhythm, to himself. And as we move into the connection rhythm, we see that while we celebrate the story of our God and how he's redeemed us and connected us to him, we see that God has connected us into a community, the third gospel rhythm. And you know what that means? If our jumping off point for planting a church is a focus on what kind of community will we be? If we begin there, who are we going to be? What kind of community do we want to present in Brevard County? We're never going to get there, folks. If we begin with a list of value statements, even adopting Scripture, we're going to be the church that's patient. You're never going to get there. Tragically, honestly, I've watched a number of friends crash and burn their way through planting the perfect community. They wrote down a list of values they were going to achieve. They were going to do something different than the church that they came from. But friends, we aren't different. We aren't better. We're not better than Corinth. We're not going to be the first church in history that finally gets it right. What are we in need of? Not a list of ways to become a wonderful community. We need to remember that Christ, by his gospel, has made us a community. He did it. It's already done. We celebrate the story of God, right? The story of God that has connected to our lives. He did it. And in connecting to our lives, he has, he has made us a community. Our existence is a simple matter of grace. Now we just get to deal with it. And it's going to be a mess. Because we're there. We are the ones that he has made together by grace. As we remember the gospel, we're like, well, I guess I'm stuck with these people. We're family now, and I don't even like some of them. But here we are, family now. That's what he's made us. 
It turns out I'm going to have to be patient. It turns out there are going to be numerous moments to endure all things. But God is our Father. Christ is our brother. His Spirit is at work among them just as much as He is in me. Because this is what we are. This reality, this confession, is a gift of grace. It's not what is unique about our church. It's the one thing that every church that is actually Christ's church has in common together. The grace of God to make us a people together. It isn't something we get right. It's something he got right. It's his gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This kind of love is going to feel like dying every day. Every time you're confronted with a quaint notion, can't we just love each other? We reply, yes. Yes, we will. And we ask ourselves, does that mean that we're willing to die for one another? Does it mean that we're willing to stand on the foundation of Christ that has died for us? Consider this image that comes to my mind often as I think about loving the church that God has made us together. One decade in, and as I'm considering loving one another here, I'm thinking perhaps 30, 40 more years. Three, four more decades. And I think it's going to to look like slowly bleeding out until I'm 70 or 80 years old, and then we're done, if I'm lucky. And then on that day, when I finally bleed out, when I'm finally used up, and before you think that this is inflammatory language, consider Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 15. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. There's not a qualification in that. There's love in that. Jesus loved his disciples, right? And then it says he loved them to the end. And on that day, what will happen? Paul, I, we will see love for the first time ever. And we'll know the lover of our souls face to face. Say, oh, how I treasure the way of the lover. I've seen my Savior. I'll finally bleed out for the sake of the gospel and see him face to face and say, that's the one who loved me and enabled my meager, messy imitation in my life. Do you want it? Is that what you want, church? Are you willing to bleed out in light of the gospel until the day you see Christ face to face? Let's remember who wrote these words, who who talks about long-suffering and talks about enduring all things. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. He endured rejection. He was literally beaten out of cities for preaching the gospel. He was the one who planted Corinth. And now he gets a letter from them explaining how things are such a wreck. You've heard of perhaps Paul's thorn in his side. Some have suggested that that was Corinth. Some have suggested it was Paul's thorn in his side that when he was in prison for preaching the gospel, he would receive a letter that would break a pastor's heart. And he would say, I'm done. I'm never planning another church. I'll just go live on an island somewhere. I wonder if he's like, man, if I have to go to prison in order to not deal with those people anymore, leave me here. And then they send a letter. No more letters. Just let me rot. I'd rather be under house arrest than hang out with those guys. He's beaten and he's brokenhearted over teaching these hard-hearted people. He's endured shipwrecks and prison time. And he says, love one another for the sake of Christ. Do you think he means it? Do you think that he has seen the lover of his soul? Follow with me. We've considered the beauty and excellence of a love like this but we've also considered the burden and the weight and the suffering of a love like this. Consider the face of love. In verse 8, it says, love never ends. 
Prophecies pass away, tongues pass away, they cease, knowledge passes away. We know in part, prophesy in part, but the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What's he talking about? There's something that is coming that will last beyond anything the Corinthians have seen or imagined. There's something that's coming that will last beyond the things that they've come to rejoice in in this world. And they've made a really big deal of the extraordinary spiritual gifts, but they've lost sight of what is actually extraordinary, that God became man. And he dwelt among us. And he died in our place that we might be redeemed. What has ceased to be extraordinary among them is that they have been given the Spirit of God and they will see him face to face. Have you and I stopped for a moment to realize I have the Spirit of the living God. In the midst of the congregation at work in me, that's extraordinary. And one day, he who has been given to me see him face to face. This is the hope of being known. The face to face love of being known by our God. Verse 12 says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I believe that one of the greatest errors of the church in church planting is that we seek to plant better churches by simply trying to love better or be more theologically accurate without calling ourselves to be actually known. Not allowing ourselves to be known by God or known by the church. We shrink back, we pretend, we perform because we're afraid. What would happen if we finally opened up? Let me tell you what would happen it'll hurt. That's what'll happen. It'll hurt. 10 years worth of it. 30, 40 more. But the Lord sees you. He knows you. And he will use his church to minister to your hurt. Will we plant churches that just know a lot of things? without seeking to engage one another's lives in love. Tim Keller has this on love. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. And friends, there's no greater love than that. Our God knows us all the way. Why will we're yet sinners, not even the semi getting a little bit closer to being cleaned up Christian us, while we were yet sinners, he knows us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to be fully known, to be fully loved, knowing us, God loved us to the uttermost. Friends, this is the gospel that God himself became man and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ, that he died. He did so in in perfection and humility and sacrificial love. He went to the cross. It wasn't that things went badly for him and then he was willing to endure it. The cross is what he came to do, that he would die in our place, so so that instead of the wrath of God, we might have the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ. For all who would place their faith in Christ and his work, this is the gospel. Is it good news? Is it a better way? Does it sound like love? The passage ends with these words. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Sandy and I years ago said if we had three daughters... We would name them Faith, Hope, and Love. And then the third one would go around all arrogant. Yeah, I'm the greatest, right? (laughs) Love is the greatest. Why? Because it compels faith. Seeing the love of Christ for us is what compels us with the faith to love one another. Love is what sustains hope when hope is running thin. When love doesn't purchase for us what the world would have love purchased, the world says, I'm not going to love you anymore. It's not working. But that's not love. 
love that compels faith and sustains hope, says, even if I would bleed out in love and sacrifice for you, I get to revel in the way of Jesus. And that's worth it for me. Love is the orientation and the disposition of our treasuring Jesus Christ. Our love for one another is an orientation and a disposition to treasure the way of Christ. Love is the heart of our spiritual gift. I think the application is simple and very complex. It's simple to understand love is the heart of our spiritual gifts. Love is what makes every one of the spiritual gifts truly spiritual. True love is a love that's fixated on the true lover. True love springs from and points to the true lover. Friends, some of you are tired. Some of you are weary of doing good because it's wearying. That's why. You feel like you've given All the way, you've delivered up your body and you feel like you've gained nothing. The reminder for you is that true love seeks to gain one thing and one thing only. Friends, let me suggest to you that the whole point of this passage is actually right in those first verses. You mean that if you do all these things with tongues and knowledge and mysteries and and giving away your body, even martyrdom, you gain nothing? I mean, is it worth at least a little bit of something? The whole point of the passage is this. Christ or nothing. There is nothing to be added. There is nothing that if you subtract Christ, there is something That remains. There is a lover. And friends, I know I, and I think you, need to hear this morning, he has loved us well. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we, you would give us just a moment, a little step aside, perhaps this afternoon, perhaps this week, and and we would consider we would sit down and be loved. They would cease with our talking, our thinking, and our doing for just a moment and know the love of our God. We thank you for the gift of the Psalms that proclaim your love over us. We thank you for the gift of Hebrews, for the gift of Corinthians, for the gift of the Gospels, for the gift of Mark, for the gift of First Peter, for the gift of the book of John, that in these we are loved by you. Situate us in your love, we pray. For the one here who has not known your love but is still striving, still doing in their own strength to be justified before you, I pray that you would sit that one down. Call to cease striving, that they would confess their sin, even the sin of their striving for righteousness. Be forgiven, be loved, be justified. Be brought into your family this morning, we pray. Thank you, Lord, for loving us well. Tutor us as we are at all times situated under your love to become lovers, not only of the God who has loved us, but of the way of our God who has loved us well. Thank you, Lord. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.